Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn from a chilly Wiltshire. Hello, it's Richard Heller, and it's an equally chilly southeast London. Now this week, Richard, we're going to address one of the probably the greatest cricketing issue of our time, which is the English Cricket Board and the existential crisis, many would say, facing English cricket. It's so battered and bemused by everything that's going on. It's so morally compromised. We've invited frequently uh, the ECB to come and stand up for themselves. They've um, not done so, but we renew that invitation. But today we have one of their leading and most interesting critics, Mohammed Sadiq. He's from Bradford. He's heavily got involved in the racism scandals. And uh, very, very many thanks for coming on, Mohammed. Thank you. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Richard. Good morning, Mohammed. Mohammed, um, you're an activist. You're also a, a human rights lawyer. Um, you represented one of our guests of some months ago, John Holder, the ex-umpire, in his action um, against the ECB for discrimination, and also uh, his associate, if you like, um, Ismail Dalwood, another umpire who alleged um, discrimination. Um, their case was um, lost not on uh, merit, I think it's right to say, but on the technicality that it was out of time. I think that's right. And what is that? The, is that the right um, description? And um, what was its ultimate outcome? Well, I'm glad we started with that because if you analyse the the, the Dawood and, and Holder case uh, and compare it to to Rafiq's case, um, in my view. Holder and Dawood is more relevant in terms of the general cricketing culture and more, more importantly would define or describe the, the inner workings of the England and Wales Cricket Board. Um, John was a very renowned, well-known, highly regarded umpire. So he was at the uh, one end of the, the, the scale and Dawood was at the other axes he played county cricket. He was from a working class South Asian background, uh, wanting to start his career in officiating. Both of their complaints were along the lines that, as a consequence of his race, John Holder was stopped from further enhancing his, his career. I think statistically, he did very few test matches after 1991. And Darwood's complaint was that he had to jump many hurdles which other umpires were not required to do. And having jumped through uh, a lot of these hurdles, uh, he wasn't allowed to become professional full-time umpire. Both gentlemen knew that their cases were out of time, but they brought their cases on the basis that the England and Wales Cricket Board would make radical changes to the department that deals with appointing and, uh, umpires and, and looking after umpires and more importantly, bringing umpires from different backgrounds, in particular from different racial backgrounds. So that's a very quick synopsis mm -hmm. of what that case was about. 
one of the things you draw out of what you're saying there is that the Dawood and the Holder cases uh, of, of alleged discrimination suggest that the problem of racism and the ECB and English cricket much more broadly dates way back before the scandal which blew up last year concerning Azim Rafiq. Yes, Peter. I think Rafiq's quite unique because I don't think anyone can in any way um, downplay his experience or indeed say that it was a, a grave injustice. Uh, in actual fact, in my view, there's been many instances of, of racism with other personalities, players uh, in cricket, and quite potentially their uh, experiences and, and, and their difficulties were more uh, graver than the experiences which Azim Rafiq experienced. Uh, one of the unique uh, aspects of the Rafiq case is that we had a, a tolerant and supportive media and the climate and the culture post-BLM made the debate important. And you will know, Peter, if Azim Rafiq was in the 1980s or the 1990s, in my view, uh, the English media or, or indeed the commentators would have probably taken a different view. Uh, and that's why I would say that this is a wonderful opportunity now for filling with the world's cricket board and for the county cricket system to really make the changes that are required because I don't think we're going to get this experience again or indeed we're going to have another opportunity again. Can you just tell me one thing that I've never really quite understood? What is the legal status of the ECB? Let's say, is it a, is it a private company? Is it a public body? Um, if it's a private company... You know, who owns it? Who appoints the directors, officials? Who are the shareholders? Um, I think that's similar to views expressed last week by Duncan, our, our, our friend. Um, what, what I did manage to um, research, and I, I suspect Peter and yourself will have a better understanding of the, of the history of it, but clearly there was uh, an evolution from the old Test and County Cricket Board and the Test and County Cricket Board uh, evolved from the old MCC mm -hmm. uh, that, that ran the game. And from the Test and County Cricket Board, we now have the England and Wales Cricket Board. Um, for me, the importance was the, the, the decision maker, the, the directing mind and will of, of the body. And I think in the Department of Culture, Media and Sport inquiries, I think they had a very similar misunderstanding or, or, or indeed not a very clear understanding of exactly how the England and Wales Cricket Board operates. Um, what we do know is that it has a board and the board allegedly makes decisions. Um, it has a chief executive officer, a very, uh, at the moment, a very highly criticised one, Tom Harrison. And we have many, many people who work for Bingham and Wills Cricket Board behind closed doors at Lords. So my, my, my focus has always been, as opposed to looking at the constitutional or entity aspects of Bingham and Wills Cricket Board, who actually makes the decisions and who the real power brokers are. In my view, 
I would say the most powerful body or aspect of being on the Wales Cricket Board is the board itself. And the reason why I say this is because we never ever get to see exactly what the minutes of their meetings are and exactly what their uh, reasoning behind decisions. So for example, we know very little on how the recruitment process has or will be taking place concerning the new appointment of the new chair. We know very little in terms of um, why Mr. Watmore left. Uh, we know very little why there was a principal difference between previous chairs not being given a stipend to undertake the job and responsibility of the board. And now I understand it's a salaried position. So there's many different things that I guess we read in the media, but in terms of the actual nitty gritty of being in the world's cricket board, I think we know very little. Who are the shareholders? I don't know, Peter, to be perfectly honest. That's very interesting. So we don't know who the share and who is the beneficial owner? Again, I don't know. Who made the decision to give 2.1 million in bonuses last year? Again, I could not be in a position to confirm. I suspect the way it's been argued or mooted, it was a the decision of the board to reward its officers or executives based on performance. Uh, I, I wouldn't be able to understand how else they would have agreed to have rewarded senior executives on the basis besides performance. I'm assuming, I'm assuming that the English cricket board, its primary income, the great majority of its income comes from Sky Television, which um, screens test matches and ODIs. Is that right? That's correct. And the BBC? And the BBC to some much more limited extent. Uh, I think it's a billion from Sky and 50 million from the BBC. Oh, that's it. Right. A billion. Exactly. So the BBC is neither here nor there. In that. And what about the ICC, International Cricket? Does that pay? Is that, do they get stuff from the money from the ICC? They have very complex broadcasting um, arrangements, I, I, I suspect. But the, 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 the biggest funder, shall we say, of the England and Wales Cricket Board is, is Sky. One thing that emerges clearly is that ordinary cricket supporters and ordinary cricket fans and players, uh, there's no accountability to them within the ECB, is there? There's, they have no um, means of control over the ECB or influence over the ECB, except to the extent that they might be members of the, the constituent counties. Yes, but the same applies to footballers. We have a really complex <laughs> system in the United Kingdom where you have private bodies, some of which are part-owned or there's percentages owned by trusts that are run by fans and supporters groups and so on. And in particular, with cricket, you have a, a private organisation, which is the England and Wales Cricket Board. You then have the 18 counties, which are also private organisations, but both deal with public money. Mm. The England and Wales Cricket Board, the research that we did, and I think this is the point which all the politicians and the journalists missed out in covering Rafiq and, 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 and the racism and the discrimination uh, matters. 
our research revealed that between 2009 to 2017, Sport England gave England and Wales Cricket Board 62 million pounds. Hmm. I've written to Sport England on many, many occasions asking one very simple question. Can you please explain how the England and Wales Cricket Board spent this 62 million pounds? And what did Sport England reply to you? They said, we can't do that. We don't do the audits. Who does That's fascinating. Who, who you would have thought. Fascinating. Who does the audits? They so, use external organisations to undertake and carry out the audits. And are these audits published? Can we, ordinary fans, look at the audits to see how efficiently this money has been spent and what it's been spent on? I have been asking Mr. Hollingsworth, uh, the chief executive at Sporting Room, for a considerable period of, of time, because in my view, that's potentially more important than, than Rafiq. In my, I, I've always regarded Rafiq as a, a human resource matter. Uh, and it's clear the experience and, and that, that he encountered or the experiences that he had were racist. But it's remarkable how the politicians, in particular those who are under, who are on the committee at uh, at Parliament and those that heard evidence from Rafiq didn't ask the counties and the England and Wales Cricket Board how it spends public money. Hmm. And why is that an important question? Just spell it that out, Mohammed. It's important because I would argue that uh, economic discrimination is far more important, uh, far more dangerous, uh, far more inverted commas racist than professional sportsmen and women uh, experiencing it because professional sportsmen and women uh, are contracted, uh, can bring claims. Rafiq clearly did, and Yorkshire County Cricket Club settled. Uh, Holder and Dowood, albeit they were well out of time, but still brought a case based on public interest consideration. The general public can't take the England and Wales Cricket Board to court on the basis of how they've spent Sport England money. Mm -hmm. But you'd have thought that the members of parliament on the uh, DCMS committee, the first thing they ought to have, in my view, looked at and considered is how does Sport England, uh, or how has Sport England used a vast chunk of the 62 million that it was received from, from Sport England um, in alleviating discrimination, poverty, disadvantage, inequality, and so on. Uh, and that's very telling in my view, because that would have been in potentially a far bigger scandal than the experiences encountered by particular sportsmen and women through racism. Conrad is saying, um, Mohammed, that um, in Pakistan, there's quite a history of fans taking the Pakistan Cricket Board to court. Um, uh, there was, when Peter and I were researching Pakistan cricket, there was a, a year, I think it was two thousand, well, a year, 2013 to 14, where the, the leadership of the PCB changed hands three times as a result of court proceedings. Um, not saying we should go down that route here, but it's quite an interesting contrast. <laughs> uh, well, I'm going to give you a very interesting anecdote. Uh, I emailed and telephoned Mark Arthur, the chief executive officer who was at the very core of 
of Rafiq's case or complaint in 2013. And I explained to Mr. Rafa that I've done some homework with respect to how Yorkshire County Cricket Club distributes Sport England money. And I requested a meeting with him in terms of uh, why certain clubs receive Sport England uh, money and why the vast majority of ethnic firms don't. And that was in 2013. So in my view, uh, and, and they won't touch it and they won't do it because it, it will reveal two things. Firstly, there's been very little hard investment into ethnic minority cricket. And secondly, they won't reveal statistics because these statistics would be quite telling. Another anecdote would be the closure of Haringey Cricket Club, arguably the most successful cricket pathway in the history of English cricket, produced some remarkably gifted and quite well-known black cricketers. Give us some examples so that people listening can understand the importance. De Freitas, Marceline, uh, 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 Adrian Rollins, um, Chris Lewis trained with with uh, with Haringey, Carlos Remy, and, and so on. So I can see, and this is enormously relevant because we had this incredible, wonderful generation of, of British-born black players, of whom you've just named four, and then it suddenly all dried up, and we don't really have them anymore. To absolute disaster for for all kinds of reasons, and why, you know arguably one of the greatest pathways into the professional game and couldn't attract the, the, the appropriate finance to, to keep going from either the regulator, which at that time would have been the Test and County Cricket Board, or indeed the government. And that, for me, is the clearest example of how uh, ethnic minority groups are treated not only by the regulator, and at that time it would have been the Test and County Cricket Board, but also the government. And um, showing visible solidarity to uh, cases like Rafiq also masks and plasters over economic inequality. And I think to this day, there's still, still no author or writer or uh, any person of repute in, in cricket who has written about Haringey, which is absolutely staggering. We will, no, I tell you what, Mahmoud, we'll what we're going to do, you've convinced uh, <laughs> me uh, and uh, Richard, I think you agree, we better dedicate a podcast uh, to the, the fate of Haringey Cricket Club, which, as you say, was a great pathway for black players into the English game and was suddenly closed in the 19. 19- in the 1990s, we're going to come back to that. That's a problem. I think it was, was, was yeah. a bit later. Yeah, but um, but um, but can I just tell, go back to your your central? What you're saying is, in, and I'm generalising it rather than making it specific. That Sports England is it, it invests public money in the game of cricket uh, as professionally practiced mainly in Britain. Essentially, it, it doesn't know where that money is going, in particular, which is very striking because it comes from a government body. It pays very little attention to sort of balancing 
the uh, the kind of white dominance, the kind of private school dominance of the English game, and the racial imbalances which we can see up and down the country, uh, and th- and that's very striking and very odd, given that it's public money. Yeah, I think if you if you look at it very closely, Peter, uh, Rafiq was an absolute godsend to the the committee tasked with hearing evidence from all the the parties concerned. And the reason why it was an absolute godsend, because what did it actually reveal? What was the optic to the the general public? Uh, MPs being very pro-Black Lives Matters and very uh, keen on anti-racism and so on. And I think the, the public got beautifully sucked in and were led to believe that these members of parliament or or the the corridors of power in london don't in any way subscribe to to racism and, and so on what it failed to actually disclose or reveal in my view is the sheer negligence and the dereliction of duty of politicians or, or of government or the sports minister about how sport england has invested money, not only in ethnic communities, but in poor communities. We've had a lot of testimony already from previous guests, Mohammed. We've had a lot of testimony about um, economic discrimination in cricket, if I can put it that way. We've had a lot of testimony about how cricket is an expensive game, uh, how it almost automatically discriminates against participation by poorer people. And that's, uh, in some testimony we've had, that's a key element of the discrimination against minority ethnic people, because minority ethnic families in Britain tend to be poorer and tend to face bigger barriers in getting their children into cricket and keeping them in in, in cricket. And if I sum up what you're saying... Are you saying that the economic effects of um, discrimination in cricket are more important than the overt racial um, discrimination that we've seen in cricket? Yeah, because I'm going to give you another example. I think this this may well help help explain life uh, as I see it. Um, Well, about 50 odd years ago, there was a, a very famous book written by somebody who is from the same town as Azim Rafiq. The book was about poor working class communities and education in poor working class communities. And it took a left wing filmmaker to make this film very iconic uh, uh, and famous. Um, Can you name that town? Barnsley. Barnsley. And the film? Kez. Yes. Okay, yeah. And the similarities between Barry Hines and Billy Casper mm-hmm. and Azim Rafiq are remarkable. It's so ironic that both come from the same town. And Rafiq, in my view, is a modern day Billy Casper, clearly somebody who was let down and the, the system failed as Azim Rafiq. And in my view, Ken Loach and culture is very similar to racism in English cricket. 
Um, and the reason why I say this is because we have been here before. Jeremy Corbyn in, 19, uh, in the 1990s said that we have major racism problems in cricket. There's been many reviews since Corbyn raised that point uh, in Parliament. Has these reviews really made any particular difference? Yes, it's created a race relations industry. Experts have come and gone with respect to how best deal with the ethnic issue or the ethnic problem. But the one consistent throughout the whole episode of how best sport and in particular cricket embraces all and so on, has been economic racism. That's always been there. And it always will be there. I'll give you a very good example. Uh, we've had Bill Morris, who was a board member at the England and Wales Cricket Board. We've had Lord Patel, who is the, the, the current chair at Yorkshire County Cricket Club. Did they make any particular difference to the, the board or the way the board saw ethnic minority communities? In my view, no. Um, one clear example would be their flagship magnum opus, South Asian um, strategy. By definition, they excluded the black community. It's staggering, isn't it, that the regulator of the, the national sport has a particular strategy for a particular group of people and at the same time disregards another community in doing so. Only in England that can happen. Wouldn't happen, wouldn't happen in any other part of the world. So for example, it would be, would the NFL in America do a specific strategy that for, shall we say, the um, Central American people, but disregard all the other communities that represent um, or, or play uh, American football? Probably not. And the irony is nobody asks any questions. Can you just imagine that we're on the board making this decision to approve and sign off the South Asian cricket strategy, and yet nobody on this board would raise the question, well, just calling it South Asian strategy, are we not excluding the black community? Do you not think the black community is just as important as the South Asian community? It's very interesting what you're doing there because you're, we were identifying Bill Morris, the, the first black trade union leader of a major union, huge national figure. Uh, he's on the ECB, which has got a, I think we can all agree, a record of, of being at the very least complicit. Yeah, he was on the ECB board, wasn't it, before? Yeah. Uh, and Lord Patel, who's the current chairman of, of Yorkshire Cricket. He was, he was previously on the board too, wasn't he? Yeah. And what you... And both of them, you're saying that they somehow, despite the fact we had two major figures from ethnic minorities at the height of English cricket, somehow they made no difference. Uh, yes, I would. That, that would be my contention, yes. I think Lord Patel certainly raised the issue of South, the issues specifically related to the South Asian community. But what do we have about the black community mm. at that time. At the bottom of your argument, is it not that actually race and class are the same issue? Yeah, because I would also go further and say, 
what have we done for white working class communities? Yeah, that's what you're saying, isn't it? And so it's very interesting. Two or three weeks ago, we had Mickey Stewart on, you know, talking about being uh, brought up in South London in the 50s and the massive opportunities he got. And he was very eloquent about how that's gone away and how the cricket has become becoming more and more a private people have to be middle class, privately educated in order to get a chance. And so it's it, what you're talking we're talking about is, is what you have been talking about is the neglect of the working class community and the neglect of the ethnic minorities. And actually, that's the same structurally, economically, that's the same thing. Yeah, uh, 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 as far as I'm concerned, uh, Richard and, and, and Peter, it's let down the the South Asian community. It has let down the black community. And equally, it has let down the white working class communities. All three communities have suffered. And cricket has suffered. Cricket is ceasing to be a national game. It's becoming, um, almost, there's almost a form of cricket exclusion. It's becoming a game for, 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 for middle class people. And if you, and that is a tragedy. It's ceasing to be a national game. So I think this is a, a wonderful way for me to give you the practicals of what Duncan was trying to argue uh, last week. Um, and a lot of the academics come from very middle-class backgrounds who go to the Russell Group universities. And it's all good and well that they write these wonderful books and theses and dissertations about inequality and the rest of it. But I think very few of them have actually experienced it or it's not been a lived-in experience for them. So I'll give you my example. I, I, I was uh, educated at a very rough and tough comprehensive school in, in Batley, West Yorkshire. I was a recipient of free school meals and free school uniforms. Uh, and my father was laid off because at that time in the 80s, uh, the, the traditional industries were, were being closed down. But I was helped by, inverted commas, a white middle class cricket club into cricket if it wasn't for the good-natured people of Hanging Heat and Cricket Club um, my love for cricket would have been well how can I put it many will be having this discussion today mm. um, me and Ismail Dawood actually were batting partners in the great under-13s team that we had at Hanging Heat and Cricket Club in fact we won every single game bar one and we only lost one final out of four or five finals in, in, in one season. It was 1987, and 90% of the team is ethnic at a very white middle-class cricket club. So I don't subscribe to the view that every cricket club in Yorkshire is racist, because it isn't. There are lots of decent cricket people and clubs in Yorkshire. So I will never level criticism to those communities or to those people. And moving on from what Duncan said last week about schools and uh, differences between opportunities at independent schools and comprehensive schools, well, yes, there is, but that doesn't mean that you can't still play the game or enjoy the game. So I'm gonna give you a further example. We have the, the Batley High School, the comprehensive, it's at one of the highest hills in, in, in Batley. The school was opened by Sir John Hunt, the ex expedition leader of 
Hillary's uh, Everest climb. Um, and in my view, it was probably the worst experience that any child can have. The school motto was wisdom and strength. And the joke was you either needed a lot of strength or a lot of wisdom not to get your head kicked in. Mm. Yeah. And a lot of people don't want to hear these stories because it makes them feel uncomfortable. But we did get our heads kicked in. We did have khaki bashing. Uh, end of term, the police were outside escorting the ethnic kids out of school. Head teacher saying, I can only guarantee your safety to a certain part. After that, you're on your own. Run. You know, no child should be subjected to be thrown a water bomb full of urine or to have been spat at. You know, we had black blazers and before we would enter the classroom, the back of your blazer would be covered in spit. So, you know, we understand and Rafiq's testimony brought back a lot of trauma for a lot of kids who had this experience in many schools in Yorkshire. And a lot of the white middle-class academics who love talking about race and so on, have not had to go through the indignity of these experiences. But we had a wonderful school teacher who had a great love for cricket. Now our cricket pitch was a plastic pitch and the equipment in terms of bats and pads and so forth wasn't brilliant, but we still played cricket at school. Now you cross the road and then you have the Batley Grammar School. I mean, quite literally the schools are next door to each other. Famous for uh, having Titus Salt as a student. Uh, the, the scientist Priestley was an old boy and, and so on. And their cricket pitch was a miniature Lords. They had a full-time cricket master and the complete opposite in terms of opportunity of education and opportunity for sport. But we would beat the grammar school at cricket. And although in terms of facilities and, and opportunities and training and so on, we had very little compared to the grammar school, but the high school still produced many decent cricket players. But the importance was, in my view, that if it wasn't for wonderful cricket clubs like Hanging Heaton, where kids from the grammar school and kids from the state school could go and then play during the summer holidays and so on, then it would have lost a massive, massive generation of white working class cricketers, black cricketers and Asian cricketers. And I subscribe to the view that it's for all people including the middle classes, to offer solutions for the problems created by the England and Wales Cricket Board. And it's very simple. And the, the cure and the prescription is very simple. If you can calculate how many PE teachers, 62 million pounds would have made, many thousands, I suspect. And if those PE teachers could have been rolled out to inner city schools, schools in the north and, 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 and other parts of the country, for example, Liverpool or East Yorkshire and so on, shall we say that the poor north communities and re-establish cricket in schools or play cricket in schools, 
then that would be one particular problem solved with participation and racism and inclusion and so on. But the caveat obviously would be, are there still fields to play on? And I, mm. I take the view, Peter and Richard, that yes, lots of grounds have been, have been sold, but a lot of the grounds are still on schools' environments. So for example, they still have the cricket pitch at my old comprehensive school, but cricket's not played on it. And there's many comprehensive schools in the North that still have areas that cricket can be played on, on the school grounds, but it isn't. And it, in my view, is a tragedy that many millions now will be spent on management consultants mm -hmm. telling county chairs on, this is how you write an ethnic strategy, and this is, <laughs> um, you know, we need to be sensitive to describing people in a certain way and so on. What the English and what the British government and what Sport England are absolutely fantastic at is creating industries and the only real beneficiaries are management consultants. Mohammed, you had a very, um, uh, what sounds like a very creative and interesting early career in cricket, but it was empowered, wasn't it, by volunteers and philanthropy? essentially, and it was powered by a particularly, you know, well-disposed cricket club, Hanging Heaton. How do you see your experience being replicated on a large scale? What's, what's the solution? We can't depend exclusively on volunteering and, um, and philanthropy, can we? The solutions are there, but there's no joined-up thinking. There's many, many thousands of volunteers up and down the land who do amazing things on a Sunday morning for children. And the irony is, they're not asking for handouts, they're not asking for, for state aid and so on. What they're wanting is recognition and respect. What they're wanting is kids who are introduced to the game in high schools, so then they can have an interest to then attend coaching sessions at various grassroots grounds and so on. I'll give you a good example. My local cricket club is famous for two reasons. Firstly, because it's still, in my view, the only cricket ground in the UNESCO World Heritage Site. Mm. And secondly, because it has an amazing grassroots project and initiatives. Over 160 kids in the week turn up to learn the beautiful game. But we need more kids that are coming in through the comprehensive school system. We need to make cricket exciting again in comprehensive schools. Uh, and that's the thing. Um, and the, the, the new industry now is going to be created post-Rafik and post-BLM will again waste many, many, many millions and will be again here in the next cycle. So you can interview me in 2027 <laughs> and we'll look at how many kids are playing cricket in the comprehensive schools and it'll be exactly the same as the statistics that are on display today. So we don't need to find new and novel ways. We just need to improve and connect the existing system in my view. Can you tell us which, which club it is that uh, um, was in this World Heritage Site? Saltaire. Well, Saltaire is the UNESCO World Heritage Site, isn't it? Because it's the, the wonderful dream and project of Sir Titus Salt, isn't it? 
So one part of Saltaire is the UNESCO World Heritage Site, isn't yeah. it? Because of salt smell and so forth. Mm. And as part of the, the complex is the cricket ground, isn't it? I didn't know anything about this. I think it's famous for Len Hutton too, isn't it? Saltaire, if my history serves me right. I think Len Hutton played that Saltaire, yeah. I'm, I I'm just didn't know that either. Um, fascinated by some of the names you volunteered as alumni of um, Hanging Heaton Cricket Club earlier. Dilip Vengsaka, VVS Luxman, and our great and sadly departed friend Abdul Qadir. I think Qadir played two seasons at Hanging Heaton. Really? Yeah. Absolute. This is before he was famous. Mm. Magnificent bowler. Oh, Richard and I had the honour of meeting the great Abdul, going to well, his training school, playing, playing with, with and playing. indeed, he he played for us three matches. He came as our coach when we toured our first ever tour to Pakistan. Yeah. Uh, he was he was so lovely. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to be controversial. I would say he's better than one. Well, he was something of a mentor to Warren, as, yeah. uh, as you know, as that famous, wish I'd been there, as an, just as an observer, as that famous dinner where Abdul Qadir entertained Shane Warren and um, a young Shane Warren, and they exchanged um, deliveries over the carpet afterwards <laughs> for hours. But this, is, but this mm. is the tragedy of Yorkshire cricket, because if, I, if my memory serves me right, uh, when Ben Sarker came, he was the number one batsman in the world and there was a, a local locally grown player called Arma Arif fabulous batsman but by virtue of his father and grandfather not being born in Yorkshire he was unable to play for for Yorkshire and I think Arif got more runs than Ben Sarker in the season that Ben Sarker played and that's the real tragedy isn't it that Yorkshire County Cricket Club have lost so, so many talented cricketers because their father or grandfather were born in other parts of the UK or indeed other parts of, of the world. And we experienced that because that was my generation that, that was lost. Mm. And many of the friends that I played with, some were absolutely Wow, X Factor box office. And the tragedy was that they would never go on to play first class cricket. And I don't think people who went through that or experienced that or had their lived in experience of that would properly understand or accept the great wrong that was Yorkshire County Cricket Club with, it, with the rule that it, that it had. Yorkshire's unique, and that's why. Probably because of that and because why it's not a very well-liked club is why Rafiq had great support and rightly so. And I think that's why a lot of the, the politicians stuck the knife in, so to speak, because of their, of their history and what, what Yorkshire stood for. I don't think any other county cricket club is as hated as much as Yorkshire is for, for that particular reason. Mohammed, that's an extraordinarily powerful note to end on and reflect on. Uh, just by the way, the uh, interview we referred, you referred to last week, which we held with um, Duncan Stone. Duncan Stone is a major social historian of English cricket, and he took us 
in considerable depth through the class struggle that's permeated uh, English cricket and the way in which um, leisured southern amateurs have controlled the narrative of the game and the, the administration of the game. Um, Hamid, you've given us a tremendous amount to think about. There's a great deal more we could talk about with you and perhaps you'll come back for a second innings. But for now, it's um, thank you very much from me, Richard Heller. Thank you very much, Mohammed. So much we learnt. I, I'm quite determined to bring you back and talk not just about uh, uh, Yorkshire cricket and all the issues involved, but also about the Heaven Helpers Cricket Club, which Richard and I have both played for you there. And um, we've got some adventures lined up for the season coming ahead. Thank you so much from a The Sun Has Come Out uh, in a slightly warmer, but nevertheless wintry Wiltshire. I'm eternally grateful to you both. Thank you so much for having me.